Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm Sean. I'm David. And today we have a special guest with us. Her name is Rachel. Rachel, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Um, hi, my name is Rachel Axe, and uh, I'm a geologist, and I write fiction. And if you want to find me on the internet, just go to katsudon.net or rachelaxe.com. Excellent, excellent. So uh, we asked you to be here because we uh, decided to do an impromptu episode on a very interesting new horror film called It Follows, which has been getting quite a lot of uh, a lot of rave reviews. Um, and I figured we should have a somewhat different set of perspectives uh, given some of the content of the film. Uh, so the, for those that are not familiar, the, the film is an uh, independent film by David Robert Mitchell, uh, who previously had done... Uh, a film by the name of uh, The Myth of the American Sleepover, which I have not seen, and I'm guessing no one else has. Is that correct, David? No, I haven't seen that either. And Rachel, <clears throat> I'm guessing not. Okay. Uh, the film spotting people said it's good, you should watch it. I I just haven't had time to watch it. But in any case, uh, so we're here to talk about It Follows, uh, a horror film. Uh, I, I, I would describe it as an existential horror film, but I don't know if David would agree with that assessment. Um... Uh, maybe not by myself, but uh, carry on. Okay, that's fair. Um, so why don't we start by just kind of basically describing what this film is about, and, and I want to start with Rachel, because she is our unwitting victim, uh, who's not um, a fan of horror movies. No. So this should be very interesting. So please explain, uh, for those that are not familiar, what this film's about. Well, um, the, being the only person with boobs on this podcast, I assume that's why I'm here. Well, I have an A cup, so you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> can't believe I just said that. I'm sorry. Continue without that in your mind. <laughs> it's, it's, you said it. You cannot unring that bell. <laughs> um, so the movie, the, the main character of the movie is a girl whose name I can't remember because I am absolutely terrible with names. Jay. But, sorry? Jay. Jay. So Jay has a boyfriend, and it turns out he's been lying about his entire identity, and he basically just gets close to her, and they sleep together, and it's so he can infect her with a curse, where, because she was the last one on the banging chain, pretty much, this monster will follow her, and it just walks at a very slow pace, and it heads for her in a straight line constantly, and if it catches you, it does some terrible shit to you, and kills you. And then, um, if you want to get rid of it, you just have to go find someone else to sleep with and hope that they don't get killed by the monster. Because if they get killed by the monster, then the monster comes back to you. And that's, like, the basic concept of the movie. And, um, one thing to note is I actually saw the movie at the Alamo Draft House, which, uh, they, they've actually been pushing it for a while. And sometimes when they have, um, particular, uh, independent films where the, the, that the company kind of can can get a hold of the director. They'll have the director or the producer or something do like a little before film announcement for the Alamo Draft House, where they're you know they're like don't text and don't talk or we'll kick you out of the theater. And he actually explains it as you know, yeah, if, if you have sex, it comes after you and kills you. So don't talk, don't text, and and don't have sex in the theater if you want to live. <laughs> <laughs> That's clever. That's clever. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I think that's a pretty good um, uh, basic idea of the plot. I mean, that's certainly the the supernatural element here, that it is what is essentially a supernatural STD. Yeah. Um, and and I, since this is something different, David had mentioned this on podcast, it's somewhat different than what we normally do, where we're watching a film that is somehow significant or what have you, so there's a kind of history behind it. This film has no immediate history that we can really address in terms of its uh, placement within the film canon Assuming it would be fi- placed in a film canon, I think it should be someday, maybe. Um, but in any case, uh, this is somewhat different, so I, it's going to be kind of a different t- uh, discussion, a weird kind of organic flowing out of ideas. So I think the first thing I actually wanted us to talk about was actually the STD thing, because I think that's the obvious uh, sort of parallel that's being presented, but it's also one that I think is doing a lot of different things at once. Um, so it's obviously one that's kind of about STDs. It's also about teen sex. Um, I also thought of it as being a kind of metaphor for teen pregnancy as this kind of thing that no matter what you do, you, you it doesn't go away. It's sort of you, you're stuck with it. 
Um, I don't know if that was the intent behind it, but that was one of the things that I had uh, had thought about uh, because so much of this film is focused on uh, teen sexual activity in some way or another, uh, whether directly through the, uh, the 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 creature itself or through people basically like exchanging sex in order to weather the storm, as it were, uh, which happens twice for our main character, um, and it's presumably happened for the man who infected her uh, n- numerous times, as is suggested in the scene when he first infects her and then chloroforms her and holds her in a wheelchair in order to show her that this monster is real so that she will not die <laughs> so that it will come back to come get him. Um, but I don't know if that was how any of you had thought of this film um, in terms of those different layers, uh, but I certainly had thought about that. Um, so um, David or, or Rachel, Rachel, we'll start with you. Okay. Uh, I was going to say one thing, what I actually did find very interesting about this movie is it was so explicitly about, you know, a, a metaphor, uh, for STDs because most of the time when you see the particularly, uh, the sexuality of young women, when it gets brought up in a horror context, it's always kind of like, you know, kill the virgin, uh, or kill the kill the girl who is not the virgin because now she's a dirty whore and it's that the Madonna whore dichotomy and all that. Whereas I was actually so pleasantly surprised throughout the entire movie that at no point does anyone go like, oh well, that's what you get for sleeping with a guy. Everyone, it, you know, I would not call it in any way a sex positive movie. But it's not like anyone is doing a lot, you know, no one does slut shaming on Jay. Everyone is just very concerned because from the beginning, everyone is pretty much like, oh, my God, they think this guy has raped her, which I don't blame them considering he basically drives up to her house and throws her out of the car wearing only her underpants and then drives off. So, yeah. And Sean has a hand. Well, I, I think that that's actually what's essentially happening. I mean, he has—he's come into that situation on false pretenses. Uh, I mean, she's—she is not. I mean, this is much different than what happens later in the film when Paul, which we'll talk about later, I think, because there's some skeevy kind of stuff going on there. But where Paul basically says, like, "Hey, we can have—we can have sex, and I'll, I'll weather the storm with you. We'll do this together." Um, but this—that first scene. I mean, he literally lies to her. He doesn't tell her that what she's doing is is basically putting her life in danger. So I think that that's what's actually happening is a kind of uh, uh it is essentially just a form of rape. It's just not it, it's not it's a more I guess allegory rather than uh, a sort of direct uh form. But Rachel, I, I I'm guessing you want to back at me on this. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there there is the the part in there where the police officer actually asks her if the sex was consensual, but what I I wanted to say is, you know, You've got the monster as metaphor for STD, and and I honestly think that it's much more uh, explicitly uh, looking at HIV. And the reason I, I tend to think that is like, say, when they go into the the house that the boyfriend, you know, rented under false pretenses. They're they're looking through the medicine cabinet, and there's all these pill bottles that have the labels ripped off, which is you know pretty evocative. But um. The other thing is, I'm trying to think, I, I believe there have been cases in the past where, like, there people have tried to bring, say, criminal cases against uh, sexual partners who uh, infected them with there HIV success- willingly. Yeah, There's been some successful prosecutions up here about that. Yeah, so to me, that that was immediately, I was like, okay, this is not just an STD, this is HIV. And and it's this very, like, he went in there under the knowledge that he was going to give her a disease that would probably kill her. So that that's that's what it really evoked for me. Yeah, yeah, and I wanted to throw this at David, because he has not had uh, had a thought on this yet, and I didn't want to, to move on to <laughs> other aspects until you kind of gave us your impression of this. Um, well, I, I think definitely the, uh, I mean, the, the, the sort of the sexually transmitted, uh, disease aspect is, um, is, is certainly, uh, front and center. Um, and I, I think it also plays with the, 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 the dual meaning of the, of the title, right? Which is, you know, both literally, you know, the it that, that follows you, but also it follows in the sense of consequences, right? If X, it follows that Y. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think what I what I also really liked, and maybe this is starting to um, 
I apologize that this is getting off uh, in, in, into areas before you wanted to uh, go there, Sean. But the uh, what I I really liked about the, the film too is that the it is undefined, right? We exactly what the the demon or the thing is that is coming for them is never explained. We just know how it works, but exactly what it is we don't know. It adopts a different form each time. Sometimes a stranger, sometimes a loved one. Though very, very often with a, a sexual connotation, but it is also the the it um, is is open to other these other interpretations as well, right? Death itself, uh, it seems by the uh, by the end, uh, and if you sort of look at the way that it, it it's functioning, right? This thing that it was inevitably going to come to for all of them, and, and why I think the the ending is so powerful, uh, where we have. Uh, Paul and Jay just sort of holding hands, um, you know, in, in some ways accepting uh, the their their fate to and just trying to stay ahead of this thing for as, as long as possible. And this connects back to uh, the um, uh, what, what's the, I forget the name now of the uh, uh, is it um, not not Greg the uh, the guy who infects um, uh, Jay. I've forgotten um, you. Uh, I've, I've, Hugh, thank you. Um, when he when when it is asked who would he trade places with, and he points out a little boy who has his whole life ahead of him, and having the characters be teenagers, it, it felt like one of those instances where a, a horror film where having the characters be teenagers was really important to the theme. That here uh, they are on the cusp of adulthood, in this that that, that liminal state of uh, uh, you know between adulthood and um, childhood, and as they are becoming uh, adults, there's also those first real intimations of mortality. They uh, they are losing their sense of immortality. They know that they're going to die, uh, and so the uh, the it then is. Uh, the, the the sexuality that that in, in uh, that, that is the trigger also becomes like the uh, you know the the apple in the garden of Eden of, of experience of knowledge that uh, that all of this will end uh, for them and I think that ties into the the, the final reading of the idiot uh, that, that we get uh, in, in the film which is all about death itself rather than than sexuality uh, but it can also be the uh, the blight, the the uh, predations of capitalism that are uh, coming for them, because the film is also very, very uh, you know, the, the the social decay that we're seeing is is very much uh, underscored for us. So uh, you just covered like 19 different topics. We're gonna have to unpack. Yeah, sorry, now. that was a, so, <laughs> that was a bit of a because a lot a of that is is stuff that I think uh, I think most of us probably noticed and probably wanted to talk about. Um, but I'll, I'll backtrack a bit. We'll come back to uh, you. You talked about Capital, but I think the specifics that we're talking about is this set in Detroit, and I'm sure we'll have more to say about that. Uh, but I wanted to backtrack to an earlier point when you first brought up Paul, which uh, I think was the, the natural point we had to go to after kind of talking about the underlying element of the the sort of the supernatural STD, the it, as it were. Um, and so before I get there, I actually really wanted to mention that uh, part of what m- made me really enjoy this film was um, when I watched the film, there were all the previews. And I'm sure you got them, David, and Rachel, you probably got. Pre- do you have previews where you were? Uh, yeah, but it was only a couple. Um, okay, well, I had 900 minutes of previews. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm joking, but of course, it was. it felt like forever. Uh, and they were all for horror movies that are coming out at some point this year. And the thing that I noticed that uh, was just a stark contrast with this film is all of those horror movies, those trailers were doing the very, very typical loud noise jump scare, right? Nothing really was happening in the trailer. It was like somebody walks in a room and then it's like, Bajong! and just that's what's being brought on the terror. But there's nothing actually occurring really in most of these these moments, right? There's no suspension. There's no uh, uh, tension being produced so that when the scare actually comes, it's a release, but it's a release that's terrifying as a horror film should produce. This film, I got the, a very different perspective because I kept feeling throughout this just impending sense of just dread. Yeah. Of uh, and, and in many cases, never fully released. It was always kind of... Um, there are a couple moments when it really does release where characters get caught by the... The, the the it whatever it is um, and I think a lot of that comes to what David you were saying that the the this thing 
we never know what it is. It's it's a supernatural thing of some kind that follows them and kills them in 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 one case in a very strangely sexual way, an incestuous way, as in that particular scene when um oh god, what the hell Greg. is his name? Greg, Greg. right, with pretty hair Greg, uh is murdered by the it dressed up as its mom his mom and there's basically like a, a sexual exchange of bodily fluids that's occurring which is the kind of horror that we get and we get that throughout whenever they get kind of presents in a sexual way these kind of really horrifying not quite graphic but but also graphic i mean i don't mean not, not graphic in the kind of sense that we typically think of horror where like there's just like blood flowing down the walls and like i don't know but but in any case the impending dread this constant sense that no point in this film is anyone who's infected actually safe and so the illusion of safety throughout the film like when they go to the 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 lake and they're sitting there and we can see the thing walking up behind her and we're watching it and that scene goes on for several minutes i swear it feels like several minutes when they're sitting there just talking it's a great turnaround scene yes yes and then it grabs her and it's it's not one of those sort of just really insanely overblown kind of horror scenes. It's very simple, right? It grabs her hair and she screams and then they hit it with a chair and he and uh, Paul gets knocked across and then she runs, right? It's, it's very simple, but it is extremely effective. And that happens so much that we, we see these, the it coming. And sometimes we see it before the characters notice it. Um, uh, and, and so we're like constantly lured into these false senses of security and never getting, to actually be there even towards the end when no solution is provided right the the solution is essentially paul and jay basically become like a couple out of necessity which is how i i thought of it i didn't think that that she was actually interested in him it was more like we're we're gonna exchange bodily fluids and share this this hell together um and it's sort of like a uh, it's something you had said later david that idea of the the deterioration of of, uh, I guess, the social mores. I mean, that's essentially, this is the, the, the end of the classical uh, hetero family unit. I actually disagree with the, the, the nature of the relationship there, but, uh, so Rachel, you had a hand. Okay. Yeah, Rachel, you go first. Okay, David disagrees. All right. Um, first of all, I did want to say that I thought the, the construction of the monster was actually very interesting in that it was actually a real physical entity that you know had to be let indoors or had to break windows to get into the houses and just wasn't visible to most people. But then you know at the end one of them throws a blanket over it and then suddenly they can see where it's at. So I I, I actually found that very interesting and to a certain extent creepier than if it could just float through walls because then you're just like yeah you're you're triple double fucked and you know what are you gonna do? But one thing I actually found kind of interesting was in some of the, the clothing choices, because I, I, I try to pay attention in, in movies too, you know, especially the costuming. But uh, if you look at the beginning of the movie, uh, Jay is wearing like a little, a little white dress when she goes to go have her, her date with Hugh where he ultimately has sex with her. And it's not like a virginity thing because you find out later in the movie she was not a virgin when she went and, and had sex with him. She just hadn't gotten around to it yet. Um, and then you don't really see her in that kind of, of very marked white dress until the very end when she is walking off with Paul and then... Paul's wearing a white shirt, too, which I thought was kind of interesting, even if it's partially hidden under his jacket. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, and the, our final shot of them in those, those say, more innocent, uh, as far as the color coding is concerned, uh, clothes, is them tentatively holding each other's hands, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, I mean, I, I, I think the... Uh, you know, Certainly, uh, I, I don't think of myself as a as uh, as, as a happy ever after romantic in in, in most uh, respects, but I think there is something genuine between the two of them there. Uh, that I mean, Paul we know has been carrying a torch for her forever, uh, but um, 
the when we see her coming is from uh, hang, staying with him that first night when she's frightened of 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 the it coming after her um and her her feet gradually moving towards him and the the, the fact that she um doesn't want to pass the thing on to him right uh that there is um a, a, whereas she doesn't, uh, there isn't a the, the kind of long-term um, romantic attachment uh, that that Paul clearly uh, feels. I did get the feeling that by the end there's something real there, uh, and that though it, uh, so the relationship rather than being a, a sign of decay, there is. Uh, almost um, sort of you know, love amongst the ruins, in that all they can do um, is hang on to each other. Uh, it's all going to end, uh, but it, it makes actually makes me think a bit of um, um, uh, Margaret Atwood's poem "Variations on the Word Love," uh, where the word is is uh, is too small uh, to it cannot fill the void in the stars, uh, but it's all there is, and so you can either hold on or let go. So I'm going to disagree, David. Part of why I disagree is that I think what the, what Mitchell's trying to do here is uh, giving us the myriad ways in which teenagers actually interact in terms of their relationships. And so Paul is one particular type of friend. He is the uh, the friend who has been quote unquote friend zoned, which. I'm not. I'm using that in quotes because I'm using. I don't. I don't mean that term in terms of like that. It's actually a valid term, but that's essentially what is happening with Paul, and it's it's almost explicit. There's a point at which it's very clear he has a thing for her. Everyone else knows that he does, uh, but he's essentially just saying like, "I like you too." Like, why can't we have a thing? Why did we never do anything? Where he's basically just kind of like uh, not quite upset, but not satisfied with the level of their relationship. To the point that what he wants is more than what she either is willing or is capable of giving. And clearly up to this point has ever been willing to give him. Um, and so that's why I sort of interpret that moment where it's actually her kind of giving in. Because at the moment when she makes the decision to actually sleep with Paul and share this this hell with him. Um, is after it's it's basically she's lost all hope. Right there, she's slept with a bunch of. Uh, we were. It suggested she slept with people on a boat in the middle of nowhere, right? But then the thing comes back for her, um, and so she's in the room with her friends, basically like giving up, like she's just lying around, as though there's no future left. And that's when Paul comes in, and he's like, "Well, we could do it," and then she essentially relinquishes. So that's why I treat that as uh, I think of that as a as the decay of that relationship, which I think is what the film is doing in all kinds of ways. It's not just the decay of that, but just the the general moral decay of I mean the whole the whole city essentially is what it what I uh, it's suggesting. You suggested earlier, David, that it was the sort of the decay associated with capital, but. Uh, that could be another easy way of interpreting that too. So, I, I will though say that that's not when, when they have sex. It's not uh, when he comes in and asks her about that, and that's when uh, one of the uh, we get the scene where she explains among other reasons why she said no to him. Uh, they have sex after the scene in the pool, where um, they have uh, at least you know where he has done uh, he has tried to save her. Uh, and for a moment, it looks like they have uh, done so at least temporarily. Um, and so that's the, uh, and so we kind of go, as, 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 um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we go straight from the pool scene to the two of them um, having sex. Is that not correct? That's correct, I think. Yeah, yeah. Rachel probably has it a little fresher than I, than I do. Um, you're right that there's the pool scene, though, in between there. Um, yep. I still read it in the same way. It's just more depressing because they have this big old plan we're gonna electrocute the ghost to death <laughs> in the pool which actually is kind of a shitty plan when you think about no, it. no it's a terrible plan i <laughs> i was i was like really paul this is the best you can come up with oh honey but at the same time like these are a bunch of kids who like spend their days like watching old like like sci-fi movies on you know what is almost essentially just a classic tube tv <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I mean, the technology in this film is so much fun because they're, 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 it's TVs with rabbit ears. The cars are all from the 70s and 80s. It's an you know, above-ground swimming pool. Uh, the If it weren't for the fact that uh, people have cell phones and uh, clamshell e-readers, uh, there would be no way of knowing that this is taking place in the 21st century. Even the uh, score, and, the, like the, the very synth-heavy score, there were times where yes. I was like, oh, God, it's like the 80s. Yeah, well, I'm very, very John Carpenter or, or Goblin uh, in its uh, in, in, in its sound. So there's so much that is, um, uh, is is from that era, and and so when they're they're trying to electrocute the ghost, uh, it's all of that old technology that they're th- that they're planning to throw into the swimming pool, and then the ghost is or the the it I should say is is throwing into the swimming pool, uh, and it it feels like. A, well, um, at least there, one of the, the readings I got as far as the, all those, those antiquated consumer goods are concerned is that uh, there's a moment, it's not in the original uh, Tennessee Williams play, I don't think, but is in the uh, film version of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof when Big Daddy is uh, saying that uh, uh, man tries to, buys and buys and buys and buys and uh, one of the things uh, you're hoping to buy is eternal life. Uh, and and so that's what uh, all the consumer goods are substitutes for, and so we get a terrible reversal of that when uh, the the ghost is hurling these things at um, at Jay in the swimming pool. Yeah, the technology was something I did actually want to talk about because there are all kinds of intermixtures of technology throughout, um, and I think that's actually really significant, given that the the place where this is set is Detroit, which was not immediately clear to me. I might have missed the clue. Um, but I didn't figure out it was Detroit until they actually had that conversation about the the sort of uh, imaginary lines that are these sort of social lines that are set up about where when you enter leave the suburbs and enter the city. Mm-hmm. You remember everyone remembers the scene, yeah. right? Yeah, that was when I realized yeah. it was Detroit. Also, yeah. yeah. Same here. And I think that that one of the interesting things is you know given the history of Detroit um, as what some would suggest based on last year when the city was essentially bankrupt. Uh, the idea of Detroit is this failed city, this city where all of these different historical technologies have gone through and have failed, and it is a city that is essentially ruined. I mean, huge portions of Detroit are just they're just abandoned. I mean, they're like car factories just lying, uh, falling apart. Um, and I think that's really interesting because on the one hand, we have these technologies, these intermixtures. They're watching stuff on old TVs. They're driving cars that are 20-plus years old. They're using clamshell e-readers and cell phones so there's all this intermixture of technology and yet they're in a city that is essentially all of this history is written on its face but it's the kinds of history that is not embodied in the technologies they're using it's it's a uh it's a very desolate kind of uh historical intermixture in the city itself i mean even when they go to the pool it's like this it's uh, it's not gothic but it felt like I'm trying to evoke a feeling, you know, that kind of feeling of gothic dread when yeah, they go I mean, to it, the pool. Yeah. It's this huge monumental uh, echoing building. It's very gothic, I would say. Okay. Uh, I just wasn't sure if it was actually, like, architecturally gothic. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, but it, it has that it has that feeling, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even that, like, that moment, it feels like this place that's out of place. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's part of this this city, and yet it is, and it's... Uh, I don't know if the pool is actually abandoned, but it feels like it was a. It's an abandoned pool. It's just sitting there, but which wouldn't make sense because there's water in the pool. But then maybe I don't know. I don't really know how pools work when you abandon them. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but anyways, is someone want to maybe jump in talking tech or the city or the capitalist element that is kind of in this? Well, um, I guess I'll say as far as the uh, the capitalist thing, the. Uh uh, I think uh, um, Joe Hill and Gail Simone were talking a bit about this on on Twitter, but the uh, our characters are in the suburbs, right? So they are the ones who have been sheltered by their privilege from the uh, the the blight that has uh, victimized so many other people in the city, which we don't really see until uh, uh, Paul drives through. You know, that moment when it looks like he's going to just. Um, you know, uh, pay for sex and pass it on that way, um, and then and, and seeing you know we see people who are so much worse off than they are, and, and he doesn't. Uh, but the uh, you know there's a, a kind of the 
So these are the people who have been sheltered from the they have they're the beneficiaries of uh of of, of capitalism and are uh have been sheltered from the its collapse uh in that uh, that region but that is coming for them now too. Yeah, yeah, I think that's actually a really fair fair reading. Um, there is a uh, there's a feeling that is, uh, and I don't know how to quite describe it, that when we're in the suburbs, uh, in the film, it feels uh, there's something off about it. It looks like the what well, I think part of the uh, um, the the feel, and, and this is starting to get onto something else, is that it uh, it feels like we're in Haddonfield, Illinois, on October thirtieth. Uh, it's uh, it's John the, the feel that we get in John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, where everything is it, things are looking just a little bit too tidy and not quite right, and and something is going to disrupt this. Yeah, I I also kind of got the the opposite sensation that. It was already disrupted, but nobody seemed to have any full sense of what that entailed. Like that's yeah. what I, it, it feels. Um, it's unsettling when you kind of get into the suburbs. It feels like it should be functioning, but yet you have this distinct sense that it's not. Like a, a suburb is Potemkin Village. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, that's kind of how I felt. I mean, I, the moment that the that we get away from that first death scene, right? A really horrific scene. We have no idea what's going on. We just know this poor, poor young girl is is terrified, and has that phone call where she's telling her dad she's sorry and all these kinds. And then we they find her dead. Um, the moment after that, we kind of actually get into the suburbs, and it's just always this kind of sense that this world is is incomplete. There's something amiss here, um, and it's something that we had mentioned on podcast. I mean, the, the parents are almost completely non-existent. Um, there are only a couple of scenes when Jay's mother's actually present. Uh, most of them, as David, you had mentioned, right? She's on the phone, usually talking about whatever's going on with Jay. Um, and then she's just almost completely absent. We never see Greg's mother, and I don't, I can't recall any moment seeing it before it's embodied by the it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are the rest of the parents? There are these friends that hang out at their, their house. We never see their parents. We never really hear about their parents. Where are they? I mean, these are kids that are like, you know, suburban middle class white kids running about in the city of Detroit, right? Uh, and there are no parents anywhere to be seen. Uh, it's a very disconcerting, unsettling sensation, I feel. And also very much that of a fairy tale where the parents must be absent. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That is interesting. This is just a very horrifying, <laughs> terrifying fairy tale. Um, yeah, but uh, all right, well, any, any, Anyone else have, have anything else, Rachel, maybe? Um, not specifically about the more kind of capitalist stuff, because I, I was mostly just very trying to pay attention to kind of like the, the gender and sex aspects of it, because I kind of figured that was why you asked me to come on. Well, if, if you've got a perspective on some of the, uh, on any other aspect of that, please bring it up. It's perfectly fine, yeah. Uh, you guys talk amongst yourself for a minute. I'm going to go over my notes real quick. Okay. <laughs> Um, well, uh, we ha- we kind of talked about the soundtrack a little bit, but I know, David, uh, maybe if you could not go over your notes in a loud way. I'm sorry. My- m- mute your mic. Yes. It's like, while we're talking, it's like, Russell, Russell, <laughs> Russell, Russell. Sorry! But no, David should totally talk about the score, because the synth-heavy score was very interesting to me. Yeah, I agree, and and I will let David have that, because I suspect he's get- he's going to have a lot to say in terms of earlier horror film well i i do feel that it's uh, a film that is uh very conscious of its history uh so what you were saying earlier sean we don't know where to place it uh in in the canon or 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 in, in history uh of course n- no recent film uh that recent can we but we can situate it in terms of a tradition so certainly there's i mean i think halloween is a very big influence uh on the film both in um well, in so many ways, in the look of our of our setting, uh, that those suburbs are, are a lot like Haddonfield. Uh, the shape, uh, Michael Myers, his uh, the way he appears and comes after people in Halloween is very much like the It, and it, and it follows uh, this you know a figure closing in at a steady pace from a distance, yet uh, inescapable. 
the score is strongly reminiscent of of Carpenter's scores, but uh, but Carpenter's score was uh, also uh, inf- heavily influenced by the scores that Goblin did for uh, Dario Argento's uh, Suspiria and Deep Red. So we have that uh, uh, that echo, uh, which I, I think is then. Uh, emphasized by the fact that the the technology is looking like something that could have been in from 1978 uh, too, and the I think the the other big uh, uh, influence is the in terms of plot. This is like a uh, teenage uh, version of Casting the Runes, um, it, if you uh, or it, it's film version Night of the Demon. Where a uh, a curse is passed on, uh, something is following you. You don't see it uh, at first, but then as it comes nearer, there are more and more signs of its approach, and it will catch you. Uh, there's nothing you can do unless you can pass the curse. Well, in uh, in this case, pass it back to the person who who gave it to you. Uh, so there's. Uh, we have a number of traditions, but I think the one that the film is most heavily uh, influenced by is the horror movies of the 1970s, uh, specifically Carpenter. Uh, but uh, some of the other ones from that period where we also had a very distinct sense of the social context that they, um, uh, in, in which the horrors were taking place. Uh, so even something like The Exorcist. Yeah, I I had thought about Carpenter too because we've done a Carpenter film, yeah, Prince of Darkness, Skiffy and Fanti, uh, and that there is some of that feel here. Um, so uh, that that would have been something that if you'd asked me as a non-horror person, that's probably where I would have gone because I I got the same kind of feeling in terms of the development. Um, but it is uh, the 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 soundtrack in particular. I mean, the second it comes on, I just felt like this is. This is not what I expect from a horror soundtrack today, uh, you know. In part because a horror soundtrack today would not con- contain only synth music; uh, it would contain like pop music of various stripes, etc. Um, but also, it just has this uh, this. It, it constantly reminds us that we're out of time, in a yeah. sort of in a in a in a sort of spatial sense, uh, because every time that soundtrack comes on, it's just sort of like. We're watching a film written and directed and produced in 2014 set presumably in the present or in some weird sort of like uh, Twin Peaks alternate universe or something. Uh, and yet we're presented this soundtrack which so much feels like it is from another time, another time of, of this kind of uh, horror film. So I, I love that sensation. And every time that soundtrack came on, it was just it really, really gave that that either that chill or you just like you were really like into it. I yeah. felt so. Uh, but Rachel, I think you have figured out your notes now. Yes, yes, I have. Um, the the other thing I kind of wanted to touch on was the various forms that it took mm-hmm. as it pursued Jay. Yeah, and. Of- of course, the final form was your dad, which is kind of interesting, particularly when you're you're looking at this from the grounds of it being an STD, and you end up with her in a pool with her dad throwing irons and lamps and TVs at her. That's kind of interesting. I'm not entirely sure how to interpret that, but... You know, you, you could even look at it as a sort of, while the movie has been, up until at that point, very non-judgmental about Jay being sexually active, then at the very end, you, you have the father figure just attacking her. Um, so, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, then the first time she sees it, uh, it, it looks like, um, what I'm guessing is, is, looks like the victim of an assault or a rape, who is peeing. As he walks toward her, which is gross and very creepy. Is that the first time, or is it the, is the old woman the first time? No, the very you're, you're, um, the first time she sees it without um, without, without Hugh. Hugh, Hugh yes. the first time she sees it with Hugh, it's a woman, but I can't yeah. remember that. That it's 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 kind of like a middle aged woman who's just totally naked and walking toward her. But yeah, I think the first time she sees it without Hugh is when it 
breaks into her house and it's like the no that's after that's after she sees the old woman okay so yeah the the first time yeah that when Mm. she's at school and it's the old lady and we see that scene right because she isn't aware and we see it walking across the field like it's no big deal and it turns out of course it's the it coming for her um Yeah. yeah and then it is i think you're right that it is the woman peeing yeah, uh, and then she runs upstairs, and then, you know, it, it's waiting behind one of her friends when she lets them in, and it's like the scary freaking tall guy. <laughs> that yeah, was which, a beautiful image. That that was like yeah, I, I can picture. Oh, that's gorgeous. I can picture many a theater just uh, audience just recoiling in utter terror in that moment. Yep. Yeah, I sure did. Um, and then I, it it comes as the uh, it comes as another woman. Right when they're at the beach, and then as a child. Well, at at the beach, it's her her friend. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the the girl that eats the sandwich loudly later. Oh Christ! <laughs> That's the only scene I don't like. <laughs> That's but, right. So, and then it's and then yeah. it's the child, the kid. Yeah. And when it busts through the door of the uh, the garage, it was pointed is, out to me. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go, go no. Go ahead. That the child is, um, I I'd missed this, but that it's one of the child, one of the kids who was peeping at her in the opening scene. Oh my gosh, I did miss that. Yeah, yeah, I'd missed that too. But oh no, I I, I was like I I couldn't quite remember who, what, but it was I could tell that the person who came through, I was like that's someone that we have seen before, <laughs> in the creepiest way possible. And then let's see, after that, it's you, you see it as an old man sitting standing on top of her house. Yep. So it's the the forms it takes are very interesting. Yeah, they they invite all kinds of readings that, that uh, you know the, when the, Hugh giving us that uh, uh, that description that it, of all the different things it could be, uh, kind of then and then we see it be all of those different things, which then uh, opens up all these readings. I think that that's one of the other uh, joys of of the film, and that it's very very explicitly asking us to view it uh, in a number of different ways, uh, and then gives us all sorts of clues, so that we don't get one consistent reading that covers everything, but rather uh, uh, it's this, it's that, it's the other uh, thing, and and they're all uh, they they all coexist. I think. Mm. And and the the other thing that I found very interesting when you think about it is okay when when at the very beginning of the movie when it kills Annie we have no idea what it looks like then um but when it kills uh Greg it looks like Greg's mom and when it's really going in for the kill on Jay it looks like her dad so hmm. Yeah, I mean the moments at which it actually commits the act, the actual final murder, it's it's Freudian always nightmare time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly when it seems to get closest to her, uh, it's it's usually people she knows. I feel like uh, I mean the old woman never really quite gets close, right? She just runs. Yeah. Uh, but everybody else, her friend grabs her hair. Uh, the kid busting through the door, which of course. Is something that he's essentially doing with his eyes in the early scenes when he's peeping through the bushes, watching her swim. Yep. Um, gosh, that's a, you're right, David. That really invites some really horrifying readings. I mean, the first thing that just immediately came to my mind was the the uh, the conditioning of of young men to uh, to not value women's private space in any kind of reasonable way. Because essentially, what he's doing is he's he's breaking through uh, a door to get at her. Uh, in the same way that they're they're uh, violating her private space by sort of peeping through the bushes, it's really horrifying. Well, it's, it almost becomes a you know every conceivable um, uh, depredation that uh, could have happened to Jay uh, in uh, a, a patriarchal system comes for her. Yeah. Yep. That's wow. That's a lot to chew on, actually, when you really think about that. Um, I mean, I, I I knew that this film was doing a lot of really interesting things with gender. I mean, the moment when um, when uh, Hugh tells her, right, you know, you have to sleep with somebody, but you're a girl, and so it will be easy, right? That 
that sort of like it's a really horrible thing to, i mean it's horrible to say because of what's happening in the scene he's basically saying you now have a supernatural std good luck uh but it's also a really horrifying thing to say because of course what you realize is that there's actually truth in what he's saying and how f- really screwed up that is that that is culturally acceptable that it is easier for women to get laid than it would be for a man well so what's kind of interesting is you say that it's culturally acceptable it is accepted that it is easier for a woman to get laid than a, than a man but it is not culturally acceptable for a woman to go out and get laid as it is for a man not no. in a public manner <laughs> but it is yeah but it you're right you're right i get what you mean yeah 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 you're right yeah and i, I, I mean a, in turn you're yeah sorry david go ahead I, just, I think it's really important that that line is given to uh the you know the the, the most thoroughly unlikable character in the film uh, and is followed by this absolutely stricken look uh, on the part of Jay after he says that. You know, and and the, we're, we're given this this moment for the the horror of that sentence to uh, settle in. Yeah, like I felt stricken when he said that. I was just like, how how can you fucking say that to somebody that you basically you know just violated horribly? Like, oh, it's easy. And 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 okay, this is the other thing. The other reason that line bothered me so much is because, you know, the nice guys TM, like, one of their, one of the things that you always hear is like, well, it's so hard for for a guy to go out and get laid, but all a woman has to do is say, hey, let's have sex, and, you know, you can have all you want, which is bullshit. And it's just, it's such a gross kind of um, misogynist story that guys tell themselves. (laughs) And yeah. and is and it feels utterly convincing coming from the uh, the mouth of Hugh, right? Yes. That that the guy who does this to her is exactly the one who would believe that. And in fact, if you recall, how did he get it? You remember? That's true. Yeah. He got it. He he tells her right, go to a bar or something. That's how I got it. <laughs> right. Uh, so it, it, whether or not it is is factual to the to the real world, it is certainly within the world that. He believes it because it happened to him that some girl came up to him and said, let's do it, and he he did. So from his perspective, it's actually a factual statement. It's also really horrible that he is his suggesting that she just basically go to a bar and sleep with random people at the bar. Uh, also horrible because he must also realize that it uh, it is likely to backfire for him. Well, and then it gets, you know... It- she gets desperate enough that she effectively does that later when she goes and, you know, I guess swims out to that boat that's got the dude bros on it. That's a, that's a particularly chilling scene, I thought, right, where we, we realize what is about to happen. Uh, more of that, that sense of dread that uh, uh, you were talking about, Sean, but in, this time not for a, a supernatural reason. When you, you see those three guys out there and you're going, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Uh, and we see, and then she strips off most of her clothes and starts swimming out. And we just cut from her uh, heading out and then cut, coming back weeping and with her wet cast, and we are just left with this awful image of what happened in between that those two shots. Yeah, it never shows us. Rachel? Well, and, and the other thing that I found particularly interesting about that, you know, pl- it was the horrifying thing, the desperation on her part, but the way it's shot when she's going, you know, she's she's sleeping on the hood of the car, right? And she gets up and she hears the, 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 the dude bros out on the lake and she gets up and she heads toward them and you get the shot of her coming onto the beach where she is just doing that slow walk, straight line walk. Oh yes, toward the yes. shore, where she she's basically for a moment she has transformed into it, and she's mm. heading for the guys. And it yes. makes perhaps for an interesting um, uh, like mirror uh, to our, our opening scene where uh, Annie is you said her name was right. Um, yeah, Annie. Our, um, who also dies on the beach. Right? We keep coming to the beach where these things sort of begin or, 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 or scenes happen. Um, and she is on the beach, and you know the, the, we are perhaps seeing a, the, this moment of, of, of dreadful resignation and, and heroism, and she's not passing this on to anyone else. She knows what's going to happen. She is now here waiting, having gained just enough time to say her goodbyes. Uh, and uh, and then the the, the thing uh, uh, comes for her, um, but she's not passing it on any further. It's not is not seeking to. 
Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. of course, the implication being that if, you know, from a from her perspective, I mean, she's essentially sleeping with random people constantly to keep this thing at bay. Because as Hugh reminds us, right, that, that this... We, we assume that this is maybe one of the first times when somebody has actually gone to this level to actually explain what is about to happen. Uh, because as he says, like we already know he has done this to other people. And this is the first time... Uh, if This may even be the first time. It's not clear. This may be the first time he's actually created a relationship with somebody in order to do this. In order to get that degree of trust. So that when he tells her you know, what's going to happen, that on some level she has to accept it as truth. Which she does, and in fact the film doesn't spend much time actually questioning what happens. Uh, the friends get on her side mighty quick. With the exception of uh, of uh, Greg, who doesn't necessarily believe her, but is perfectly willing to boinky-boink in a hospital bed. Well, he's well, the only one who doesn't actually witness what happens on the beach. Yeah, right. I was going to say, they're, they're not exactly... They, they are all on board with the, the idea that something has happened to her. And, and what I was kind of reading it as is most of her friends were just kind of like, wow, that dude totally raped her and she's having some issues, so we are going to be there for Jay. And then when shit goes down on the beach and, like, Paul gets, like, freaking thrown across the beach after hitting an invisible thing with a chair, at that point... It would take a, an extreme level of denial to not believe that something was up. Yeah. Um, the other thing I did want to want to mention because we're we're gonna run a little long here, so we're probably gonna have to close out. Um, the ending, the 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 not the ending ending, uh, but in the pool scene when they uh, they they shoot it in the head and throw it into the pool and uh, shoot it again right uh, after it has not died. Uh, and when she creeps over the edge to see whether or not it has died, we see the pool filling with blood. Um, I don't know if it, if others had the same impression, but I, I got the impression that it had taken the form of the blood and was reaching out for her. I was very confused by the ending, to be honest. Like, from about, you know, I, I got the very em- and final image where it's Jay and Paul walking away and holding hands. Like, I got that. But I am exceptionally confused kind of like how we went from the pool to there and yeah that I, I I got very confused by it I mean I I would um it, it feels to me like perhaps another sort of this you know moment or a symbolic moment I, I say that a little advisedly or uh because the since the the it is so manifestly uh symbolic so we get these kind of literalized symbols and uh, in that that moment in the in the pool, uh, that is such a a striking image, right? It's one of the it, it's the the film's um, a, one big uh, supernatural manifestation. That cloud of blood uh, that 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 we see before us, and uh, in in it's the one time that the that it manifests as something other than just a person. Uh, walking towards her, but it's still it's still coming, uh, and yeah, almost as if this is uh, a, a a complete denial of the hope that maybe they did get rid of it. No, it is so far from gone that it is in fact quite literally everywhere. It fills the screen. Yeah. Right? Uh, so so like death, like uh, all, all of the things that it can be that cannot be escaped. Here is given uh, its visual equivalent. Mm, that's horrifying. Thanks, David. That'd be my take on it. Yeah, yeah. That makes I w- sense. I I was just mostly like I was like, oh, so they shot it twice, and now it's bleeding out into the pool because everyone knows that blood spreads a lot when it's in water. But that's sure. why I thought of it like, is it yeah. it was an excessive amount of blood, and so that's why I had thought like, well, maybe what it has done is it has like transcended its humanoid form in an effort to just become this sort of amorphous mass, this blood mass just reaching out for her. And that's kind of that horrifying image as we see the blood filling the pool kind of getting closer towards her. Um, And the realization, as David said, right, that you can't escape this. You can shoot it in the head all you want, but it won't matter. Yeah. I mean, mean, unlike a vampire, we're we're not given all the the rules of uh, what it can or cannot do and how uh, how it can be killed, right? All we're told is how it comes for you. 
Yeah. Uh, and and what happens if if you die? And then other than that, there's no explanation. Uh, and so that 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 certainly does give the uh, the film um, I think some leeway to uh, to play with the manifestations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we got to kind of close out here. So uh, I'm guessing from the way we talked about this, we would recommend this movie. David. Oh, d- definitely. And uh, if I can add one more thing that I I, I found really quite uh, remarkable uh, in the film, or really uh, quite wonderful, is the restless camera. Uh, it was even when there's not a lot that ha- was happening in the film, the camera was constantly on the move, and so uh, it embodied the title uh, in uh, you know in yet another incarnation. Interesting. Interesting. Rachel. Um, yeah, I, I'd recommend it if, if you're the sort of person who likes horror and if you're like me and you're a wimp and horror makes it hard for you to sleep, it's still worth watching because it is very interesting and there's a lot to think about. It's just really creepy. It is so creepy. I'm still haunted by this movie. I mean, yeah. I still have images in my head of various scenes. It's just, it's evocative. It just, it... Yeah. It doesn't let you go. Yeah, I can't wait to see it again. I really did. I I had hoped to see it again yesterday. Uh, that would have been Sunday for when we recorded this, but I didn't. I just didn't have time. I really want to though. There aren't a lot of films where I'm like, I want to see that multiple times. But this is one where it's like, I know in a first viewing, I miss stuff, and I want to get back into it. I want to really dig in with my eyes. So, um, so yes, yeah, so clearly I would recommend it. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so uh, if you haven't had a chance, do go see it. Uh, if you would like to let us know what you thought in case you did see it, uh, you should go see it. It's in, what, like 1,600 theaters now? Uh, it was only had a very brief wide opening. Uh, I think it's already starting to disappear, uh, but it was so um, it it was obviously a very very um, inexpensive film, so it certainly made its money back and then some, but I, I don't know how wide it still is at this point. That is super depressing. So, well, uh, it, it's, it has done well, right? It has more than exceeded uh, the expectations of uh, the people who, who made it. So there, there's, no, uh, there's no sad story here about its success. Uh, but if uh, you uh, want to see it, uh, don't wait. Do hurry yeah. and go. Well, I, yeah. I know that there, there is, it is going to end up on, uh, on demand. Yes. Because um, there, there uh, they, they talked about it on the Way to IndieCast where it was basically like they were planning to do kind of the limited release plus uh, on-demand simultaneously simultaneous launch, and then there had been so much buzz building up about the movie, they were like, no, we're not going to do the limited release. We're going to hold back the on-demand, and we're going to do wide release. And apparently it's worked pretty well for them. So I, I don't think it's going to be too hard to get this movie, even if it's not in theaters anymore pretty soon. And yeah. it will work quite well uh, on the home screen, uh, because it's quite a yes. new film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would agree. You could, you could probably watch it at home on your home TV, and it would be okay. Uh, just turn off all the lights. No. Yes. No. Turn all the lights off. No. And make sure you've got surround sound or wear headphones. Yes, yes. It also helps if you have a friend Lock who can stand behind you about 10 <gasps> feet, and every once in a while walk up so that his reflection shows in the TV of him walking up on you. That's perfect. No. Yeah. So <laughs> God, I hate you. I just want I want everybody to understand that uh, Rachel's a friend of ours, uh, if it's not clear, uh, and uh, we will all be at a convention together later this year. And uh, I have now found out my thing that I'm going to do. I'm just no. gonna walk in a very measured pace towards Rachel, not say anything, just stare and walk. Sean, you don't you don't want to go here with me because because I was in kung fu for ten years and when I get really scared I punch. <laughs> Fair I enough. punch hard. Okay, all right, I won't do it. I won't do it because <laughs> I, I don't want to. I would be sad if I punched you. Perhaps not as sad as Sean. <laughs> yeah, not quite as sad as me because that would hurt. Uh, but in any case, if you've seen the film, we want to leave your comments. You can go to totallypretentious.com and you can do that there. You can also email us at totallypretentious at gmail.com. We are all on Twitter. Uh, David, you are at. David underscore Annandale. Rachel, you are? I am at Katsu Donbury. Excellent. And I am just Sean Duke, Sean with a U. So uh, you can let us know on there what you think about our souls or whatever. Um, in any case, uh, that's it, guys. So uh, we will see you the next episode. Yep. Bye. Bye. Bye.